I'm from Northamptonshire, the middle of nowhere in the centre of England, and never did I think that I would see a wine on a London menu from the countryside of my childhood. That menu belongs to Anglo, a fine dining restaurant in Farringdon, focusing on classical British produce, but adapting the produce to concoct creative and innovative dishes. I'll use uh, hogweed, which is a British-grown wild herb, and I'll forage the seeds and then dehydrate them. And then once they've been blitzed, it tastes almost like cracked black pepper. Today's podcast features Anthony Raffo, head chef at Anglo, discussing the challenges of finding knowledge-thirsty youngsters in the industry. They want it, they want it all and they want it now, and they want this success of being all over social media and having all these accolades and stuff, but they don't know the true like push and grind that you need to do to get there. Anthony tells us about his far-ranging hospitality experience. I've worked in all different places. I've worked in anything from a country pub to a cafe to hotel to a little yeah, coffee shops. And how that has moulded him into the patient chef he is today, letting his ferments rest and develop his dishes over time. Not only does Anglo showcase a focus on delicious cuisine, the restaurant's warmth mirrors that of its staff. In fact, Anglo is run by Anthony and his partner. We, we see Anglo now as completely us. I'm Stella, and I'm going to take you out for dinner. Yeah, I'm Anthony. Um, I'm the head chef of Anglo Restaurant. I've been here oh, probably four years now, three, four years. Uh, we're a fine dining restaurant, 14 covers. We do British seasonal uh, produce led. We try and be sustainable and everything like that. I've worked in all different places. I've worked in anything from a country pub to a cafe to hotel to a little yeah, coffee shops. Done it all, really. <laughs> Where have been some of the most influential places you've worked? I mean, it has to be the Michelin-style restaurants I've worked at in London. So I did uh, Texture, which unfortunately is no longer around. Uh, I did Pierre de Terre. I think they're like the oldest restaurant holding a Michelin star. I think they've done it 30, 32 years, something like that. Um, they were difficult, but I find that even though it was difficult and I kind of hated it at the time, but I always went back for more. But looking back now, that really made me the chef I am. Uh, it was, it really pushed me to push myself and to think, okay, yeah, I'm getting beasted, but it made me question why am I being beasted? Why, uh, question everything basically and make sure that everything I'm doing is perfect. And now when you know, I work in more of a relaxed environment, I still have that mentality of being like, right, everything I do is for a purpose and it's going, people are paying for it and I need it to be as perfect and as good as it can be because these people are expecting that and kind of have a responsibility to do that for people. So working in those sort of environments and those stressful environments is now kind of like just set it in my mind now that everywhere I work, it has to be like that. Um, but then there's also places like the hotels that I worked in, they were like three, four-star ho- hotels, but Obviously, there were so many outlets that you, you're doing anything from fine dining to a wedding and mass wedding and stuff like that. So it's good to get influence and get sort of experience of working in large quantities, which you know always helps if you have find yourself 
losing a job and the only thing you can get is working in a hotel or something, then you already have that in your repertoire and you can, you can do it. So everywhere I've worked, I kind of have got cherry-picked bits and best bits of where I've worked, and it's kind of made me the chef I am today. So I wouldn't say there's any one place that's been, right, this is what's made me, but definitely the places that pushed me the most were Michelin-style places, for sure. Where was the first place you ever worked? Oh, wow. The first place I ever worked was it's a little pub in Titchfield. I don't know if you know where Titchfield is. a tiny little village down south. Um, so I grew up in Portsmouth, and... I went to college in Fairham and then Portsmouth and this was kind of in the same area and it was a little pub called The Bugle and at the time I was doing one day a week at college when I was still at school uh, doing catering and I worked as just a KP so I must have been well probably 15 or something like that, 15, 16, worked as a KP worked and then worked my way up to being able to put salads on a plate and stuff like that um, but it was such a, like looking back at it it was a proper rural like pirate driven place it wasn't anything spectacular but it was yeah that was the first place the bugle bugle inn i think it had, yeah, it had a few rooms upstairs as well yeah, it was definitely an experience but that was a long jesus a long time ago long time ago do you feel like having to work alongside school taught you some discipline and taught you the discipline of your of the hospitality industry well, the discipline there was pretty much non-existent, to be honest. Like, <laughs> it was, um, like I said, very pirate-driven. We were only, like, flipping burgers and stuff like that, and it was all, like, bought in, you'd get... I mean, I don't know if it's like that now. I'm sure it's very nice now <laughs> and everything, but at the time, it was all definitely bought in, pinged in the microwave and stuff like that, so there was no discipline or anything like that. College was good for discipline, but I find college... Um, not a waste of time but I feel it's not relevant anymore they need to kind of like update their curriculums and just update the whole thing because it's really not a represent a true representation of what's actually going on when you're in the kitchen like it can be a very uh, especially for a young kid going into like such a boisterous environment from to being in with just like hanging out with your mates in this massive kitchen where if anything goes wrong it's okay the lecturers will just be like well that you need to do this that or the other like it just doesn't it's not a true representation of the real life of being a chef so I've, there's no real like discipline in there either or anything like that I, I find I've had a few uh, college students from a college in London come and work for us and it's worrying the caliber that's coming through to be honest with you some of them would turn up without any chef whites or chef knives or anything like that and they say oh how, where, 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 what do you want me to do where can I get started and you're like well you, you don't have the fundamentals so you don't have the fundamentals with you how am I well you're supposed to just be there in your fucking Air Jordans like <laughs> cutting, uh, cutting stuff and working in a kitchen it's just not going to work but surely like, if he's at college he should know that he should already have that and that discipline should be there like, he should at least come with the bare necessities of starting working in a place but, but then it's just not teaching them the, the practical things mm. of how to get a job and how to impress as well. Exactly. If he came in and he was looking for a job, he'd just be out the door and just be like, okay, yeah, I'll call you later and never call him again. Like, just, just, and then you should get, go home and wonder why I've never called him back. But you know, I suppose that's just different people's mentalities. But I did find the attitude of some of them is that it's just cocky as fuck. And they just come in and be really, really cocky which I found a bit deflating because I was looking forward to teaching someone and 
you know, pass things on and maybe learn something from them. And but we, I stopped the program because I was just like the people that are coming in. It's it's not. It's kind of deflating me, and I'm not encouraged of what's going on. So I, it stops that. But it's, it is a little worrying that that was the kind of colour that was coming through of one of the best catering colleges in London. How would they display their their attitude? Was it more of you'd try and teach them something and they'd be stubborn in their ways? No, I don't think it was stubborn in their ways because they, they hadn't had their ways installed Defined, yet. Yeah. Like, yeah, they didn't have their ways already sorted. It was, I think it was just pure attitude of... I don't know what it is. It's just the attitude of really, I'm here, but it's because I have to be here. I don't really care or want to be here. If the lecturer gave me a choice of coming here or taking the day off, I'd take the day off. And when I was coming through, that just it wasn't in my mind. It was if, if I was given the opportunity to come here or go home, I'd be like, no, I can come here, I can learn stuff, I can get better. But it just feels like that isn't there at the moment. Maybe I just had a bad bunch, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't like to like tar everyone in the same brush or whatever. I'm sure there's, well, there, touch wouldn't. Hopefully there is good people coming through, but the bunch I got just wasn't, wasn't the best, to be honest. I feel like at the moment, hospitality isn't being shown as something that you can really succeed in. I think that... I think maybe it's not so much that it's not something you should succeed in. It's that... They want to succeed so quickly. They don't think like, you know, I'm <clears throat> 36 and this is my second head chef role. By the time I've met like 21, 25 year olds where they've had like multiple head chef roles already. And you feel like, like you know, they, they just want it all now quickly, fast, 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 fucking Instagram and all this business. You want everything, you just, everything in their intaking is so quick that they feel that their career should be a mirror of that as well, should be exactly the same. If it really isn't, it's such a, I don't, again, going back to the colleges, I don't think that they're teaching that it's a slow, laborious, hard thing to climb this ladder. And I feel that they're not prepared or want to climb the ladder. They're trying to find the quickest, fastest routes in the trade. And I think if you really need to master anything, not just catering, if you want to master it, you need to take your time learn and like mold yourself and master the craft instead of just being like walking in with a pair of tweezers and think you're going to put herbs on a dish all night and chuck it out it's just not it's just not it but I feel that's what they're doing they're, they've, they want it, they want it all and they want it now and they want this success of being all over social media and having all these accolades and stuff but they don't know the true like push and grind that you need to do to get there how do you think that the industry can help with that? What do you think, if, if a young chef was listening to this podcast, what would you suggest that they should do? I mean, it's difficult, because uh, the world is so different like in catering than when I started. Um, but I would definitely say to take your time, really like, don't think of it all about the money. It's, I mean, money obviously helps because you've got to live and everything like that, but set yourself up in a position where you can live as well as work in a, a half-decent place. And even if it's not exactly where you want to be right now, just keep going on at that place. And you'll, you'll learn, if you want to learn something each day, you can. All it takes is you going to the head chef and saying, look, I've really got a, I've got a good idea. I know it's never going to go on the menu or whatever, but 
would we be able to get a bass in today? Or I'm not very confident in cooking fish. Can we get a bass in tomorrow? Can we break it down? Blah, blah, blah. And all it takes is just asking that. And then you're learning. It may not be that you're working in this two Michelin star, three Michelin star restaurant and you haven't got that on your CV, but you've learned now how to prep a fish properly and cook a fish properly. That makes more sense to me. What are trials usually like? Because I'm not a... I'm not a chef myself. I work in the the serving side. Um, trials. I've not really done many trials in my life, to be honest. Um, I've mainly just got jobs purely off the back of my CV, which has been quite nice. And also, I've got jobs because I've known the head chef, or I've known chefs that work there, so I've had recommendations. So I've kind of like networked in, yeah. yeah. Instead of just being like knocking on the back door and saying, "Oh, I'd love a job." How did you get those connections? Um, working in other places. So, like, the sous chef that I work with may go and become a head chef somewhere, or the head chef that I worked with before, we, I made a good rapport with him, good connection, and then we go somewhere else. To get, he'll take me somewhere else. Like, um, example of that, I used to work in a little pub called The Checkers in... I can't remember where it is near, now, near High Wycombe. Um, but the head chef... The head chef there was the first chef to ever show me how a Paco jet works. It's like um, it's like basically a churner for ice creams and stuff like that. I'd never seen it before in my life. He showed me and then he said, oh, here's a toasted hay ice cream recipe. Do a toasted hay. I was like, fucking toasted hay, this is stupid, this is really weird. What do you mean toasted hay? We did it, we used the machine, I tried it. I was like, right, I'm latching myself to you now. Like, I'm gonna learn as much as I can off you. And then after about two years, he left and worked, uh, got a head chef position in a hotel in the Channel Islands called Stocks Hotel. And then he phoned me up and said, look, I need a sous chef. Do you want to come, do you want to come and work for me? I was like, absolutely. So then there was no, no trial, no sending my CV, no phoning. I went with him because I you know, applied myself and worked with him and pushed myself. And you could see that. But trials that I have done, I did one at Pier de Terre. Um, they kind of just kind of stick you in the corner and give you sort of job, dog body sort of jobs. Um, and then it's up to you to either try and again apply yourself and look around the kitchen, see what you can do, see where you can push yourself or like squeeze in or, you know, if I'm chopping chives, instead of just chopping the chives and just standing there, I've chopped the chives. Now, where do these chives go, chef? What's it going with? What's the dish today? You know, um, being inquisitive. Yeah, just like ask questions. Like, seem like you want to be there. Seem like you want to know. You like you want to be there, and that's how I got the job. I think the other one was um, texture. Um, again, that one. <coughs> sorry, I just stood in the corner, chopped chives. Um, I think, I think I peeled some carrots, and then we went and had a chat. But usually, it's you have some jobs. You look around the kitchen. Then you go and sit down with the head chef and then he'll just ask questions and he'll kind of make the assumption of if you'll be a right fit for the team at the time or not. That's usually how it goes. It's very intimidating. It's always nerve-wracking doing it. But after you've done it, if you've, when you get that phone call and you've got the job, it's like, wow, that was all worth it. It was really, really it's like a nice feeling. But yeah, the majority of jobs I've had has been through other people or knowing the head chef or knowing someone else that works there. And on those trials, you always make sure to bring your knives. And my chef wipes, yeah. <laughs> good job. Started mm. off on a good note. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Did you first start being a head chef here, or was it 
Connections so, again? Yeah, it was Connections again. I didn't work my way up in this kitchen. I So I was working at Auberge de Lac, which is a, a restaurant in the middle of a golf course in Welling Garden City. Um, I knew the head chef there, so that's how I got the other job, that job as well. But um, I wanted to come into London. I'd already been in London before and worked in all the Michelin kitchens and got absolutely beasted and thought I needed a break, so I came out of, out of London. Um, and then I really wanted to come back in and uh, I saw that there was, I follow Mark Jarvis who owns the restaurant. He posted that he was looking for a head chef, um, 20 covers a night, tasting menu only. And so I remember I was just coming back from holiday, I think it was in the airport coming back from Spain or something, and I just saw that on my Instagram. And I just private messaged him and said, yeah, I'm interested. A couple of days later I had a phone call with him and then he said for me to come and have a look at the place and it wasn't here, it was a private members club in Soho called, at the time it was called Trade um, it was just for people in the hospitality industry that were members um, and now I think it's called Black Book or something like that I think it's open to everyone now but um, so Mark was kind of like overseeing like that and it was going to be Anglo at Trade um, and Mark said would you like to be the head chef I'll give you the menus and everything and you'll, you'll cook them and I was like yeah fine so I, I started that I quickly realised it wasn't kind of the thing I wanted to be doing because I was just doing I, I created all the menus myself and everything in the end which was lovely I really enjoyed that and it was good to like learn that aspect but it was a it was still I had to start doing like cakes and things for the bar and we were doing uh, doing sandwiches and things for and soup and sandwiches for people that would come in just be on their laptop and uh, during the day and then in the evening it was just it was just a bar for people in hospitality so they were all just getting on it and having a good time which is a great a great like ethos to have just for catering people or people in hospitality but to be the head chef of that and just serving tacos all night it just wasn't what I wanted it didn't feel as creative no it would just I, I was expecting to be the head chef of a tasting menu fine like relaxed fine dining kind of thing but it wasn't so I kind of like looked to see what I wanted to, what I wanted to do next and then um, <clears throat> Covid hit and we didn't really know what we were going to do and I was just sat at home and Mark messaged me and said he wanted to start a bakery but downstairs here in Anglo and I was like, do I want to help? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to, love to help. I'm not doing anything else. And I hated just sitting at home. So it was really weird from going from 18-hour days to nothing. Oh, I bet. It was like, it's, life seemed very empty. There was a massive hole. Yeah, and going from such a physical job to just being at home. Sitting in front of the TV doing fuck all. It Must have felt so agitated. It was nice for the first couple of weeks. And then it was like, wow, this is a worry. What's going on in the world, obviously. And, but also... Was this during COVID? Yeah. I was like, what, what do I do with myself? Anyway, so I came came here and we started doing, um, you called it Sammy Sourdough or something like that, it's his son's name. Started doing that, so we were doing bread and uh, just cakes and things like that, and we'd be sending them out to people in Surrey, because that's where he lives. Um, and then we got to know each other really, really well, and um, he said, look, do you want to be the head chef of here? And I said, yeah, of course, because he, he had another uh, restaurant he was going to open, so he wanted to take the team from here over to there. Um, and so he said, do I want to take on the responsibility? I said, absolutely, um, only if I can bring my missus with me. And she works front of house now, so she's a restaurant manager here. So we've got our own little team going, where it's just myself and her and one other chef and a KP. So it's only four of us, very, very small. But um, 
yeah, again, it was just right place, right time, networking, applying myself, saying, yes, I'll get my ass off the sofa and come and bake bread with you and get to know you. And yeah, that's how it all came around. How is it working with your your wife? It's, it's good. I really, really enjoy it because I always feel that if I didn't work with her, then I would never see her, which would be horrible and a massive strain on the relationship. But it's really, but on the flip side, it's sometimes a strain, constantly being in each other's pockets, of course. But I, I love it. I love being able to, some people, it would be quite bad to take work home, but I love being able to sit in front of the TV on our weekends and, or watching a film and then I'm not really watching it. In my head, I'm trying to think of September's menu or something like that. And I'll just turn and say, oh, what about this? What about that? And straight away, she should be able to reply with what she thinks about it. And like, oh, I think this wine that we've got at the moment would work really well with that. So it's nice to have such a strong connection with each other for the business. Um, but that being said, like I said, there, there is hard times where literally we are constantly together. But it also makes it stronger. I I love her like so so much to like be together constantly. I I enjoy it. I really do. Yeah. It um, must be so nice to be working on a project together and seeing it grow and seeing people get excited about it. Yeah, I mean, we we see Anglo now as completely us because when we when we took over, we we had blanquettes and things all along the side here, and we ripped all that out. It was quite a dark, heavy grey colour. It was a bit drab, so. We painted it all this light, refreshing colour. We put all our um, shelves up, put all the ferments in the stuff, bought new tables and chairs, made it more like um, Scandinavian. Like we completely changed the identity of the restaurant. I mean, it was good that we had the the pedestal of Anglo. It already had like a good starting point, but I feel that we've made it completely better. And it's nice that I've been able to do that with her instead of just coming home and being excited saying, oh, I've done this today, I've done that. It's we've done that together, which is a real achievement. It's nice to be able to share that with someone so close to you. Did you meet her in hospitality? I did, yeah. It was um, at Auberge de Lac, where I mentioned before, in Wellingon City. So she's from France. And um, she was just over here doing like, um, I think she wanted to be an air hostess. And she was... Uh, as a college program or a university program she was coming over to England to learn English better and um, they set her up with a job in uh, Auberge de Lac so she was working as um, uh, I I don't think I think she was just a waitress at the time say just a waitress but she was a waitress at the time and I just started as a sous chef and I was part of the team of rebuilding because it went into administration so we were rebuilding the team and the, the restaurant and everything like that and that's where we met we both lived in staff housing so after work we saw each other at social like in the pub up the road and stuff like that and got chatting and that's it the rest is history yeah, that's so nice I think that was five five six years ago now so nice that you've been able to move to a new place together mm. it's really nice I feel like that's really common getting to know getting partners in the hospitality industry yeah when I went over to trade uh, from Auberge de Lac, I brought her with me as well, and I said, you know, if, if you got a job, and it was, it was quite handy that the one of the owners of Trade is a very well known uh, um, French sommelier, so obviously they got talking and they got to know each other well as well. Yeah, so it was nice that I can bring her with me with everything I do, because I honestly, where Anglo is at at the moment, I don't think it would be as good if she wasn't here. 
because she really understands the food. Like I serve the food as well, but she really understands what I'm trying to put across with my food. And the concept. Yeah. So when she's explaining a dish, she's ex- it's just as if I was explaining the dish because she's been there since the very first little nugget of an idea right through to it being in front of a customer. She's been on that whole journey with me. So it's just as much hers as it is mine. So it's nice to have someone like that that's so strong to be together. It's really good. And is she the only front of house person? Yeah, so like I say, I I bring out the food as well. Um, But it's it's just myself and my... That's really good because some dishes, they can be so complicated, require so much talking to your team about how to explain it, how to t- get it across to the guest, and because you only have to do that to one person who really understands how you cook, mm-hmm. must be a lot easier and nicer to explain. Yeah, it is, yeah. People really like it as well, we get regulars that come in and happy to see me, she's like, because she's the only one really serving, they know when they come in, they're like old friends, it's like, oh Marie, how are you doing? And Marie's really, really friendly and really nice, so it's it's more like you're, I know it sounds really cliche and really shit, but it does, certain people when they come in, they feel like they are coming into our living room and that we're serving them at home. And she, she's a big part of that. What kind of food do you serve here? So you said it was modern European. So it's British. British. Um, so it's British, relaxed, fine dining, seasonal, sustainable. Um, yeah, it's, I'll, I'll only use what's in season at the time. And if it's not in season, it's because it's been fermenting for six months or something like that. But it's all British ingredients. It wouldn't be like something from it, tomatoes from Italy or something like that. It will come from the Isle of Wight. It, it will be or even garlic from Italy or France. It, again, I use smoke at the moment. I'm going to be using uh, smoked garlic from the Isle of Wight again. So it's all British grown ingredients. How do you su- how do you communicate with your suppliers? to get those specific ingredients? I just tell them I only want to use British ingredients and they'll say, okay, well... They Do you will. call them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find at the moment, it's funny, there's a lot of apps going around at the moment where they're trying to get you to just order through these apps. But I, I just prefer to phone and have that human connection and I can talk to a rep and say, what's coming in, what's going out, what's early, what's late? It's just so much better to have that sort of connection instead of just tapping some buttons on my phone kind of thing. But yeah, I, ju- I just talk to them and say, you know, I really want um, to do a supplement with a shellfish. What's the best shellfish at the moment? I mean, I've done British seasonal has been um, quite close to my heart for quite a while now. So I kind of know what's coming in and out of season. But with all this global warming and everything, there are a lot of things that are coming in earlier, leaving late, shorter periods, longer periods of time um, that you can have them. So it's just all about communicating and phoning them and asking them what's good. What's an example of a dish you have on the menu? Um, so at the moment I've got, um, oh wow, where do I start with that? Um, at the moment I've got one dish where again it's not in season at the moment but I'm playing around with it at the moment is um, a fermented butternut squash sorbet and it's on the menu right now but squash won't be coming into season till about August end of September but I'm trialing it now because it's been fermenting for a year and I bought them last year when they were in season and then fermented them down and then I add it with a um, I blitz up 
the, the pulp and then add it with a sugar syrup and then <coughs> once it's been fermented, I'll get you to try it later, once it's been fermented, it tastes almost like a Solero ice cream. It's like mango, apricot, uh, passion fruit. It's really, really tropical. And it's my way of getting tropical flavours into the menu, but only using British ingredients. That's so, so interesting. You'd never be able to taste, uh, like when you taste it, you'd never be able, if I didn't tell you, you wouldn't be able to say that's butternut squash or that's pumpkin. Um, and then I'll use, um, what do you usually have? It, it has a melon sort of vibe to it as well. And what do you usually have with melons and like trendy wine bars and stuff? They put um, cayenne or some sort of pepper over the top. So I can't, paprika and stuff like that doesn't really grow in England. So I'll use uh, hogweed, which is a British grown wild herb. And I'll forage the seeds and then dehydrate them. And then once they've been blitzed, it tastes almost like cracked black pepper. So I'll put that on top. And then just get a, a, to play on that spiciness as well, I'll use tarragon, because tarragon grows in England and it's got kind of a spicy sort of flavor, um, which we grow in our rooftop garden. So I've got loads of different varieties of that that I'll put on top. There so are different can, varieties of tarragon. Yeah, yeah, you can get all sorts of different varieties. And there'll be different textures, different colors, different shapes of leaf, different flavors, obviously. Some will be, it'll all have that background note of what you'd associate as tarragon but they'll have, some will be more mild, some will be more spicy, some will be more fruity. So it's cool for the guests when they're eating this, uh, eating the fermented squash sorbet, to have like almost like these different herbs seasoning the dish. So that comes from our rooftop garden. And then um, for to give it a bit of creaminess, to play on that like mango sort of flavor, we'll put cold pressed rapeseed oil in the middle, which is from Scotland. So when you're eating it, it'll taste like a spicy sort of melon, mango flavour. It's a 100% British seasonal ingredient. That's crazy. I wouldn't even have thought that down to the paprika, you have to find things from England. Mm. I, I, it's just so intricate and complicated, all the design of a dish. After the initial interview, Anthony took me up to his rooftop garden and showed me around. This is all the tarragon that we put on the um, sorbet that you tasted earlier. And then the lemon balm, this is what we put on top of the... Uh, oh, <laughs> this is what we put on top of the... Um, oh my god, it smells amazing. So we have a cultured butter, then the asparagus you tasted, and then that. Mm. And I used to, it was flowering, I used to put flowers in there, it looked really pretty. And you got some lemon verbena, which goes with our lamb at the moment. So I do a lamb with a fermented strawberry powder. Okay. And it tastes like it tastes like nothing I've ever tasted before. Uh, yeah, so that goes on top of a pea puree with that. This I'm not using at the moment because I cut it all back and now it's just coming back again. But this is a wasabi rocket. So the flour and the leaf taste just like wasabi. No way. But it's, it's a rocket, so it, it grows in England, it's an English ingredient. God, it's amazing. It's, it's just like spicy. Mm. Mm. But the leaf and the flour is just as spicy. Delicious. This has unfortunately died, so I had to buy some meat. And then, yeah, we've got some uh, dill. Oh, fennel, it's yeah. fennel. And then we use the um, flowers. We did use the flowers as going on top of uh, the lamb before I changed it to strawberry. Oh my God, God, that's so, oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's delicious. But when, when you get it from, from sauce, doesn't it taste so different to when you're getting it from like supermarkets and stuff like that? It's like, that is just my childhood in sweets. My mum used to love, what is it? The licorice. rock. It's just yeah. Just like licorice, yeah. It's amazing. This I'm gonna cut back 
and then make a powder out of, so it's sage. And that would go on the new cheese course. What's it, so these are all the different types of tarragon? All different types of tarragon, yeah. So you've got some leaves that are like slightly, I mean this one's a bit dead now, but some leaves you've got like slightly furry, like really, really punchy, and then some you've got that a lot more floral. Mm. Now this one reminds me almost like basil. God, it's just so, they're so different. Mm. So delicious, it's so fun as well, it's cool. But it's nice to, to put that all on the same dish and then the guests are trying it and they're like, wow, it's because I put it with mint as well. And it's all different types of mint and it, it almost seasons the dish as you're eating it. And it's nice for the guests to have that experience when they're eating instead of just being like, here's your dish, okay, I know what I'm eating and lovely is. And it tastes the same every time you put it in your mouth. <coughs> but this then it tastes different every time with every spoonful. Now, back to the interview. I find that's the pair of the, that's the part of the fun, is to be, to, and especially with my cooking, that I, I like to do recognisable flavours, so when you're eating it, you it's not like, what the hell is this, I don't understand what I'm eating. Your brain, as soon as you eat it, will understand what you're eating, but as soon as I say to you, yeah, but that's butternut squash, that's where the fun happens and the the skill is, where the, the, you'd be like, Jesus, that, that does not taste like it, and that's what I like to do with my food. Like, um, uh, there's um, a cheese course at the moment, and I find that like, cheese on its own is lovely, but if you have a supplement in restaurants and it's the cheese, you're just gonna get that slab of cheese. I mean, I went to, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the restaurant, Plaque, I think it's called. Um, Plank, Plank, Plank. Is Plank. that what it's called? P-L-A-N-Q-U-E. That's it, yeah. Went there the other day and um, one of the supplements was, or one of the dishes on the menu was literally 24 month aged um, comptine and it was delicious. But it was just the cheese, room temperature, but it was perfect. I love that, but I like to be a little bit more creative. So with my cheese course, I've, at the moment I'm doing a Black Bomber cheddar cheese, which is a really creamy cheddar cheese from Wales. That one? That's the one, yeah. I love it. My parents love that cheese as well. It's so good. I find with cheddar cheeses, where the more mature they are, they get quite gritty and grainy and get all those crystals in it, um, which is nice, but I really love it. I love the way it's so smooth, but also really, really mature. And to like play on that smoothness and complement it, I've turned it into an ice cream. And then I've got some wild garlic which we foraged ourselves and made that into an oil. And then I grate some of the cheese on top as well. Then we've got some puffed potato, which is almost like little Rice Krispies. And when it hits the ice cream, you can hear it popping like Rice Krispies. And then a little bit of um, powder of wild garlic. And then there's a powder of charcoal as well because um, it represents the cheese because when you get it, it's in that black wax. So it's kind of playing on that visually as well. So at the end of the day, it is just cheese, onion and potato. But it's how, it's when you're eating it, you get those flavours with the textures and everything. It's completely different to how you've ever had it. So that's what I try and do with my food. So be very relatable, um, but be completely different at the same time. That's so cool, it was really fun. Mm. When you go to a table, do you, do you describe it like how you just described it to me? Almost exactly how I described it to you, yeah. It's kind of like set in a rhythm now that I say it, because I say it like 14 times a night. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll always explain it like that, yeah. And how many courses do you usually have in the tasting menu? So we've got 11, 11 or 12 if you include the snacks and the, um, the petty fours. I find that's a, a, a good number. I feel if we did any more, 
the, the guests might be a little bit overwhelmed with it all because although it's nice to be this creative, if you're creative like this with every dish, it's good, but it can get a bit like, oh, this is a bit of a, a, a abuse on the senses kind of thing. So we do have a few dishes where it's a little bit more toned down, but I feel that's a, a good number where people will come in and they'll eat and they'll be comfortably full and happy to leave. Because uh, there, there are restaurants I've been to before where you have such long menus and you're enjoying everything, but at the end you can't quite enjoy it because you're just you're almost forcing yourself to have those last couple of bites. So I find that 10, 11 or 12, with the snack, snacks and petty falls included, is the right amount. And how do you, because I've found with certain fine dining places and when I'm looking at somewhere to go, sometimes I feel quite intimidated mm-hmm. by the experience. I think every chef wants your diner to be relaxed, even in these quite high-end, quite stuffy places. At the end of the day, if you ask the chef, they'd always say that they want the guests to be relaxed because it's what it's all about, to be honest. But it is, I can understand why certain places you can be almost intimidated when you walk in. And, but for us, we want to be relaxed to find dining. So we want you to have that sort of food that blows your mind and is at that sort of level of a star I would say but I haven't got one but I'd love one but yeah anyway yeah, I would say it's at that sort of level but you can sit here and ha- be in shorts and flip-flops and we wouldn't turn you away we wouldn't we wouldn't make you feel uncomfortable because of that it's every we we have such a variety of diners we'll have anything from a guy standing there with his shorts and flip-flops to <laughs> full suited up business from from the from zone one kind of thing to a little old couple in the corner that's like their 50th wedding anniversary. We have such a diverse clientele and I I really enjoy that. And I feel that it's because we're delivering that sort of food where it can be sort of thought of as a um, fine dining special occasion restaurant, but you can also have it as, you know, you just fancied a meal tonight, you Googled it and found us kind of thing. Because also our price point is, I find price point is a very important thing as well. Our price point is, I think, £85 for the menu. For the sort of quality of experience we're delivering, I feel that you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere else in London under 120 quid. So I find that helps bring in these people as well, where they feel comfortable because they don't feel right. I'm spending 120 quid, but I've only, you know, just bought the tasting menu. I haven't bought wine. I haven't bought cocktails. I haven't like looked at supplements or this business. And again, I find that's probably quite people what find people find intimidating in these high class restaurants as well. Do you find that? So you, you were telling me that you don't have a Michelin star. No. I don't have any clue about Michelin stars. Really? How do you even get one what's well, the what are the requirements and the rules or are there any that is the age-old question for every chef what the what how the fuck do you get a star i have no idea because and, and any chef that says they reckon you have to do x y and z I, maybe they've already got one and that's what they did but i feel it's it, you cannot answer that question like they come in you have no idea who they are they're just like a normal guest uh, they pay their bill they leave They'll never give you like any recommendation or anything like that. They wouldn't tell you at the end and say, hey, do you want to sit down and we'll have a chat about a meal? They're, none of that. So you, you have no idea what they are looking for. The only people who know what they're looking for, the inspector's looking for, is the inspector. Um, 
I've eaten in restaurants that I think deserve a star and I've eaten in star restaurants where I think how the hell have you got a star um, so uh, yeah really difficult question to answer like obviously the food has to be a good quality but then there's places in other countries that are doing wok omelettes and they've got a star so I find it always funny I don't want to bash Michelin because I would absolutely love a star he would maybe the happiest chef in the world but one thing I would say about them is they always say some things they do portray is consistency 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 but they're not consistent themselves in giving the stars <clears throat> so how do you get a star I have no fucking clue absolutely no clue but I would absolutely love one because I feel I've worked hard enough and I feel I'm cooking the best food I've ever cooked in my life here at Anglo I've had the great opportunity of having this platform of just being completely creating my vision of what I would like a restaurant to be and basically what I would like to go and eat and it's my style I feel that I've I have my own style now um, I feel that you could put my dish in a lineup of other people's dishes and you'd be able to pick out oh, I think that's yours that's yours that's yours I think that's really important but is it enough to get me a style well again I have no idea no idea how did you come to having such a specific style how did you decide that um, it was just the journey really of being a chef so I've worked in like like I said Pierre de Terre which is a French classic French fine dining restaurant it's got like Greek influences now because of the head chef Akis but and I've worked in um, like Texture which was completely Nordic from a guy called Aggie who's now got a restaurant in the Blue Lagoon in uh, Iceland where he's from um, and I've kind of like worked my way through all these different restaurants and kind of picked sort of things that I've liked and I've leaned more towards the sort of Nordic um, ethos of cooking, the new Nordic movement has been a massive influence to me. I, I loved the way they, they plate up, um, whether they plate a dish, uh, it looks so organic and natural, um, but still perfect so it's you can tell that someone's really spent their time in it instead of just kind of putting on the plate and it looks like it's rustic it's meant to look rustic it's if it's looking rustic it's meant to look rustic kind of thing that's influenced me a lot um it makes sense to me also being a british chef working in england to to do british food and you know my mum growing up my mum cooking food british food all the time and cooking home cooked food it's amazing I don't know how she did it like cooking different meals every night I mean I've got to do the same dish or the same menu every night but she had to do different things every night how she thought them up I have no idea so she was a quite a keen chef she, every, everything was homemade it wasn't like okay she'd put in pizzas in the oven and stuff like that but then we'd also make our own pizzas using baguettes and stuff like that like using baguettes like as a base um, cottage pies and all these sort of things cakes she always makes homemade cakes so that's what I grew up with. So again, it made sense to me to cook British food. So like if I grew up in Italy or uh, Spain, I would, if, and I had the same mentality as a chef of I do now, I'd be cooking Italian food or Spanish food. It just makes sense to me. I can understand where people would have a love for different cuisines, and then that's why they do it here. Um, but they would do it with like British ingredients. So like coal, 
is um, Mexican, but they're using British ingredients. It just that makes sense to me. But he's obviously attached to Noma, so he's he's had that training as well of only cooking what's in seasonal around you and the country you're in. And I, f I feel that just makes sense. So for me, having that journey as a chef, it's kind of just made sense for me to fit into this role as a British chef, cooking British seasonal ingredients. And what made me come across that was the Nor new Nordic movement. Um, I feel that Nordic food is like blown up in the, the last like 10 years. <coughs> it's, that's okay, but um, it, yeah, completely blown up, but it's so close to us, but we haven't blown up so much in the world stage of food at the moment. Why do you think that is? Oh, that's a very good question. Because we have very good chefs, um, but why they're not being portrayed as well as they could be on the world stage, I have no idea. I'm not part of that world, so I couldn't really answer that question. But um, I do feel that maybe something has to do with it is that chefs do cook, British chefs do cook other cuisines, which is like, well, even back in the day when catering or food was becoming a big movement or going out and eating was becoming a big movement fine dining in England you'd go to French restaurants go to Italian restaurants there was no such thing as a fine dining British restaurant like Why back in the 80s 70s stuff like that. are there even fine dining British restaurants that much in other countries no if you go to that may be an answer to your previous questions because when you go when I go abroad or go to other countries if you want to find British food, it will be fish and chips, it will be burgers, it will be all this like rubbish food, which isn't really us anyway. I Rather mean, than a delicious fish pie yeah. that's made with incredible fish, really local. Mm, like stuff like you get at um, St John's just up the road, mm. which is, you know, you wouldn't see a burger on St John's menu. You wouldn't, yeah, it, it just, and that's maybe the perception of the world's view still of our, our cuisine as being deep fried fish and chips. Because that's all they see when they're out and about in their own country. It's funny, I've got, we do have comment cards um, after the meal with the bill, we have little comment cards so we can always see what guests thought instead of, because some, some people might feel intimidated to say it to my face or Marie's face of something they weren't quite happy about. We very rarely get any comments saying they weren't happy. It's always beautiful, lovely things, which is always nice to read. But we had one uh, last night that said, um, I will never make fun of... Oh, let me get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it says, uh, we will never dare to make a joke of British cuisine again. It was truly amazing. Thanks. <laughs> which is lovely to read. Um, I've had a few comments as well from Marie's friends that have come over to France and they've come to eat to see Marie and stuff like that, so we've cooked for them. And they've, I've, we've had comments of, I never knew this was British, modern British food. Really? We had no idea that this is what Britain was doing. Uh, I like to say, well, this isn't what Britain says, what I'm doing. But <laughs> I'd like Britain to be doing... I mean, we have brilliant chefs and we have brilliant food. So why we're not that bit... We're still, you know, recognised on the world stage, but why we're not as recognised, I have no idea. It's a shame. But then you're doing, you're doing British food, but it's not just the traditional take. And I feel like a lot of people just see British food as this really traditional, quite 
hearty, massive plates of meals. Mm -hmm. So they might think that in hotter countries it's not really what they want, but you're not making those absolutely huge meals, you know, when you get a plate stacked with food. I mean, yeah, it wouldn't make sense to be doing plate after plate of that sort of food if you're having a tasting menu. Yeah. Um, But there are places, like I mentioned, St. John's, which are doing these large portions of food which is cooked perfectly. Perfectly. Yeah. Mm. And simply using British seasonal ingredients. It's the the mecca for British food, basically. But it's, it's... it's very well known in England, and every chef in England, like worth their salt, knows about St John's. And oh yeah, knows <laughs> the cooking that's going on in there, and lots of chefs that have gone on to open their own restaurants have worked there. Um, but is it as well known on the world stage? I don't know. I don't really hear many of my foreign friends talking about St John's. I've taken them myself, and they've been like, "Wow!" and their minds have been blown. But it's just not. It's not as known. It's a shame, but. Hopefully someone will come along and change that one day or a group of people will change that one day. I'm sure they will. I think it's definitely made young people more interested in traditional British food. Yeah. I feel it's becoming it's becoming a trend to do that at the moment, which is great. Like, like not so long ago, it was a trend to ferment everything. Um, and now it's a trend to cook everything seasonal British. And I hope it stays. I hope it's not just a trend. I hope that it stays in it because it just makes sense to do that. So, hopefully especially considering how expensive food is now. Yeah, to bring to to buy food or buy certain ingredients that are coming from here, there, and everywhere, especially now we've left the EU and everything, is like trebled in price. So it's still expensive to buy from British farmers, but. It just you're you're not having to pay for that journey and everything as well, and tax and whatever you from all these different people taking bits from it along the chain. You've got much shorter chains. So that makes sense. And I find also the quality of stuff that I've got when I've said I only want British ingredients has become a lot better because it's not slightly underripe when it's going in the plane or the boat or whatever, and when it's getting to us, it's just ripe enough. And then it goes into the warehouse, and then it's sat there waiting for someone to order it, and then I order it, and then it travels to my doorstep, and it sits at the doorstep till I open, I open, and it goes into the kitchen, and it gets prepared, and then then we're waiting for the guest to arrive, then it's getting put on the plate, and then to the diner. It makes sense that it's just grown in this country, picked from the field, and then does the journey. Just fewer steps Hmm. ensures that it's fresher all this business of carbon footprint and stuff like that it makes sense as well it's like even with our wines and stuff it's not just a food like we use our beers there's a company called earth ale it's a lovely couple i'm actually going to go see them this weekend um they used to be london based but they've now moved into oxfordshire but they use um british uh, forest ingredients to flavor their beers um then we've got here blue aurora which is um a British company so they produce blueberries and all the excess of or old blueberries that they can't sell or uh, all the blueberries they can't sell so they're just chucking them away they make this wine and they do really cool cool. they do like three or four different types but we use this one with our dessert then we've got a liquor here that we use for all our um, cocktails this guy's called Flavor Fred on Instagram his real name's George I don't know why he does that but 
he's a forager um, and he makes all these little cocktail mixes um, with all the stuff that he's foraged himself and then he takes it to his uh, his little laboratory in Hackney and then he makes these for us and he makes them for a couple of other restaurants in London and then we've got people know this one this one's quite a big one now it's Renegade wine so they use grapes not just from Britain they do use British grapes but they use grapes from all over they bring them over and then they make the wine in Bethnal Green so again it's the same sort of ethos with the food as well as the drink that we try and do here as well and we try and make the connections with all these people like we know these two personally um, and it just makes sense to do that with the wines and stuff as well instead of trying to get I don't know this amazing wine from fucking New Zealand or something and then it also doesn't fit the food that you're having this British I've just I've just stood at your table and told you everything about why I'm using these British ingredients and why I've done what I've done and then Marie comes over and says oh well here's a New Zealand whatever to pair with it, it just doesn't make sense really sticks with I also think it's just nice to support small businesses or growing businesses independent 100% well I'm, I'm an ambassador for uh, fail just but I, I stumbled across them on Instagram when um, during the lockdown when I was just constantly just scrolling from my phone because there was nothing else to do <laughs> and um, I just loved everything they were doing it's a husband and wife team um, and he was originally a chef I think he worked in Noma for a bit as well um, but he hit the ethos that he has or they have of using forest ingredients and making these small batch beers is is lovely and it's not and like I say we know them personally we're gonna go Marie and I are gonna go and spend the day with them this weekend hopefully the weather will be a bit nicer than it is now yeah hopefully but it's it's making those connections which is more is important as well as just making the food you know that's really nice that you get to make friends with people. Is it? It's also just to make your day-to-day life in your job enjoyable. Getting to know people that are also in the industry, mm-hmm. but perhaps slightly different to what you do. Oh, of course, yeah. Well, it's like I was saying before about applying yourself and asking questions, and it's the same with with the with this. Is that you know we could have just found this beer and then just bought it and sold it and then just said oh yeah it's a British company and they use British forage ingredients and that's it but to have that personal connection with them and be able to pick up the phone and say what new beers are you doing and um, and being able just even to go out for lunch with them and stuff like that it's nicer to have that connection with a I wouldn't even call them a supplier now I call them friends but it's nicer to have that connection and build that network than rather than just having, oh, X, Y, and Z is getting delivered today, and you have no personal connection to that. But you have to have some sort of personal connection or love of what you're doing, otherwise what's the point, right? Exactly, exactly. Where are you kind of looking at the moment that you want to go try, like a new restaurant or somewhere that you've never tried before that you're interested in? Um, well, I've, I've tried it quite a few times before, but we. Marie and I just went to uh, Pigeon because they've just uh, got a new head chef there. He he worked here before as well. Um, he's come and eaten here, and we had a chat and we got to know each other quite well. Um, so we went to eat there. I definitely recommend that. I would say it's the best meal I've had at Pigeon since going. I've been like four or five times. It's the best meal I've had there. Um. The Waterhouse Project. Oh, I've heard about this. What What is it? 
So it's a guy called Gabriel who's um, he's he used to have a smaller site and now he's got this larger site uh, just by the river. And I think he's teamed up with like um, a kitchen fitting company. So they've got this beautiful fitted kitchen. It's um it's almost like a warehouse. It's really tall ceilings, almost like silo. And I don't know if you've been in silo. Really, mm. it's like it looks like you're walking into a warehouse. But it's um it's been beautifully decorated and. Again, he's doing British seasonal-led um, ingredient food, and he's very, very creative. And I, every dish that he's putting out is is beautiful. Um, uh, we went to eat there oh, probably about a year ago now, but I'd recommend that place to anyone. It's his whole the the. It's not just the restaurant that's good and the food, but Gabriel himself is such a nice guy. It just makes me want to tell people to go there even more. Um, where else? Uh, it's not in London, but I've got a friend called Tom who I I met at Pied de Terre, and then I became his sous chef in a couple of pubs afterwards. Um, and then he's he's left London, and now he's opened his own restaurant called Dilsk in Brighton. We went there for like the uh, like the catering hospitality open evening, open night. It's it's. I've, it's very recognisable for me eating it because I've eaten Tom's food over the years so many times, but it, it's definitely I can see it's his style, but it's so it's the best food he's been cooking for sure, and now he's got his own platform. He was originally at um, just before this he was at 64 in Brighton, 64 degrees. I went there a few times and ate his food, but I could see that he was he was doing his sort of food, but he was slightly held back, but now it's completely his. And it's, again, he's got some French influences in there, but again, British, seasonal-led. Um, but his food is incredible. And he's, got, he's teamed up with a really nice lady as well, and she's looking after all the, the wines in the front of house. Um, I definitely recommend people to go there. Because, I mean, the Brighton is not too... It's not a million miles away from London. No it's quick train. Easy to commute, to commute there, so I definitely recommend there. Um, there's a guy called... Uh, James that I know, James Sherwin, he's got a restaurant in Shropshire called uh, Wild Shropshire. The food he's creating there is, f I've not eaten there yet, but we've made a connection and we've spoken and we've had chats and we've made sort of a friendship, um, but everything I've, we, we exchange recipes and stuff, but the, the food that I've seen that he's creating looks beautiful. Are you a bit of an Instagram stalker for that? Uh, I wouldn't say a stalker because <laughs> I'd always reach out to people and say, "Fuck me, this is brilliant. I, I love what you're doing." I'm not scared to say I love what you're doing. Yeah. Like if I appreciate what someone's doing, I'm not going to just yeah. I wouldn't just stalk them and like take, cherry pick ideas and things like that. I'd, I'm more of the thinking of I'd like to make a friendship with them and create a friendship with them if I feel they're doing similar food to me. It just makes sense to have that sort of group around you. I think he's just um, started a farm, um, so he'll be doing all his own, growing all his own food and stuff like that. Um, so I definitely recommend people, I mean, I've not eaten it, but I'm 100%, I can 100% say that if you go there and eat, you're going to have a good time, for sure. Okay, I'll check it out actually, because I haven't heard of that before. He's, he's just had a book come out as well, I've got a, his cookbook on the on the shelf out there at the restaurant so people can see so when we have guests that ask the same sort of question where would you recommend I'd, I'd always recommend him and take the book down and show them and again it's just that extra bit of like it's a nice touch it's yeah it's showing the the human side of it to have a conversation with the guests instead of just like oh you've eaten 
yeah, I'd say, you know, go to Cole or Core or go to these massive, massive restaurants that have got all this publicity already. I'd I'd rather say these smaller people, smaller people that I know personally. Definitely, for chefs, what would you recommend that they should do when approaching this type of career? Make sure it's a hundred percent what you want to do. Make sure it's not just a fad or you've watched the bear and you think it looks <laughs> fucking fun. Like, really, it's what it's what you feel is passionate, in. and it's. It's almost like this is going to be your art form. This is going to be how you want to have a creative outlet on the world, instead of just like I said, watching one of these programs and or watching Kitchen Nightmares and thinking, oh yeah, that'd be great, that'd be cool. Actually, make sure it's definitely what you want to do because it's it's hard work. It's super hard work. I mean, I'm a head chef now, but because I've got such a small team, I'm still pulling 18-hour days. Mentally and physically challenging. Yeah, when I was when I was younger, I thought that as soon as you got head chef, you'd be just Easy. on the pass, screaming checks, you know, coming up with dishes whilst everyone's doing a service. But you know, in the journey, I realised that's not reality. And you have to be hardworking and not be scared of hard work. It's getting a lot better in the industry now, where you're getting time off and stuff, which is great. But when you're in the kitchen, I still feel that you need to give that 100%. You need to push. Because the team is only as good as its weakest link. And you don't want to be that weakest link. And if you feel that you are, you need to then come from within to push yourself to be better. So you need to have that mentality instead of just feeling like it will be fun. Or it will be something to do. Just make sure it's definitely what you want to do. And then find yourself a restaurant where you feel it's doing the food the one day you would like to cook in your own restaurant instead of just going somewhere just because it's the coolest trendiest place in town it may be the coolest trendiest place in town at the moment but then there might be something in a year's time don't be so like fickle where you're just going to be jumping from this place to this place move around do do your work in different places and get experience obviously but have kind of an idea sort of what you want to be doing. Thank you, and thank you for giving up some of your time because I know chefs are quite busy people. Yeah, it's, it's stressful, but it's, it's fun. I absolutely love everything about this industry, for sure. Anthony and his restaurant Anglo definitely embody the love and adoration of cooking and feeding people. I really felt the nerdy intricacies pop out as we were talking. His smart, eloquent means of explaining the dishes can only come from a really positive back-of-house and front-of-house conversation and relationship. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I'll see you for the next one.